0: Welcome to Three Devs and a Maybe. Now introducing your show hosts, Michael Budd, Frasier Hart, Lewis Gaines, and Ed Mann. Hello and welcome to another episode of Three Devs and a Maybe. My name is Ed Mann and today we're joined by Scott Arshisiewski. I think I got that right. Yep. Did I get it right? That far- yes, yes. I was embarrassingly. Do you know what? This doesn't even need to be on air, but I was embarrassingly beforehand trying to pronounce your name. Fortunately, you did correct me. So uh, no, it's very good. Very good to have you on the show, Scott. Hey, thank you for having me. No worries, man. Not at all. Uh, would you mind telling the audience a little bit about yourself?
1: Uh, so I work for a company called Paragon Initiative Enterprises. We're pretty visible in the PHP community. Um, we mostly do a code auditing, which is like a penetration test for source code. Uh, and software development services. Uh, my specialty is in, in applied cryptography, which is where I take like, the theoretical work that cryptographers produce and then low-level primitives, and I build secure protocols to solve business needs. Uh, some of them have been featured on our blog, like searchable encryption. There's a lot of academic research on these crazy schemes, like something called fully homomorphic encryption. Uh, I kind of avoided all that and just used the simple building blocks developers have available to them today.
0: And you know what, literally just what you just said is the reason why I wanted you on the show, because you know, you have a wealth of knowledge in the security space, cryptography space, and your your company and you personally, you're very invested in trying to get de- typical day-to-day developers writing better code, more secure code. What actually got you involved in security and cryptography in the first place?
1: So that's kind of like a life story thing. <laughs> uh, back when I was in 2000, 2002, I was in middle school. And I really wanted to build video games. And there was this program called RPG Maker, which was pirated pretty heavily because it was uh, written in Japanese. Uh, and there was a community around making you know simple RPG games in this program. And I was like, okay, well this is cool. I'm going to build my own website for it for my own projects, little simple hobby projects with really bad stories and questionable like gameplay and all that. But you know, I was in middle school at the time, and people kept hacking it. Uh, I don't know if they were... Sometimes it was people in the community I found out years later. Sometimes it was just random drive-by attackers from places like Turkey. I remember I had an open source mailing list script that I had installed. This is long before I wrote my own code <laughs> on anything heavy. Uh, and I used the same password as my cPanel account. So uh, I came back you know, one morning and my website was replaced with, this page has been hacked by Trimo, the Turkish hacker. So yeah... A lot of mistakes in the beginning, and eventually I just got tired of it. So I started slowly at first learning how they were getting in, and then it was like whack-a-mole for a, a couple months. And then a couple of friends of mine pointed me to websites like Hack the Site and Enigma Group, and I was like, okay, this is really fascinating. And then like a, it didn't take a lot of knowledge for the attacks to stop. They stopped getting in. I, I had a custom admin panel where everything was written to the file system, but if you knew the file names, it was all in you know, public HTML beginner mistakes that I'm pretty sure everybody's made at some point, but I was already hooked on like learning better ways to do security. And I ran into a lot of stumbling blocks in the beginning because uh, the information wasn't very clear. This is right around the time SQL injection was widespread and used in actual like crime sprees. I'm sure you've heard about like the TJ Maxx hack um, in 2007, the same group that did that circa 2000 had been doing like widespread SQL injection to steal credit card numbers and all this It was still kind of a young topic at the time, even though the mitigations that most people know about if they haven't been up to date, you know, escaping your inputs using MySQL real escape string were known, Uh, prepared statements weren't really part of the toolbox of most developers. This was the PHP 4.3 era.
0: Oh, yes. And and so what drew you then to cryptography?
1: It was kind of an interest of mine because I saw like uh, when you go on these learn how to hack forums, you find people of questionable uh, moral standing. Most of them are better than they seem at first, but there was a lot of talk about password cracking and there was the whole, you know, you could crack millions of MD5 hashes a second. I think it's billions now uh, on a desktop computer. And I was like, okay, well, MD5 is not the way to go. I'll try making my own hash function. And I think I just combined like MD5, SHA1 and string reverse in a weird hodgepodge I've seen people do something similar and I'm always just like, use password hash. You, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. Trust me,
0: it's fine. <laughs> Absolutely. I think that's like the great thing now is that we're starting with a lot of the work you're doing with some work that um, IRC Max Maxwell done, you know, to get the password hash thing in and everything. And then obviously with you, LibSobium, props for you for doing that. You know, we're starting to get on the right track and I was, we were talking off air a little bit but you, your company and you personally you're invested a lot in time into actually like going onto Stack Overflow and trying to fix some of these answers because obviously as a day-to-day developer we have a problem we want to solve it we, we typically will you know reference some form of Stack Overflow article or some, a question that's been on there and um, so kind of how did that come about and what success and stories have you got around doing Stack Overflow answering?
1: So I do a lot of uh, code assessments uh, before I did you know, basically full-time security work. I was just a developer who had an interest in security and, you know, I would start a job for a client or I'd get hired somewhere. I would look at the code base and I would find really things I thought were obvious, like unauthenticated encryption, or if it was authenticated, it was vulnerable to timing attacks. And this was usually guarding something like the unserialized function. So that's a remote code execution vector. And a lot of the, if I copy and pasted, like, excerpts, like, if they had a hard-coded key or salt, I would almost always find it on Stack Overflow. Uh, If you typed PHP, you know, SQL injection or PHP encryption into any search engine, Google, Bing, Amazon, or not Amazon, uh, Yahoo, any of those, you would almost certainly find a Stack Overflow answer as, like, the top-rated search result. So even if you weren't an avid Stack Overflow user, you were exposed to it. And what you were being exposed to, it it was usually insecure in a way that wasn't obvious uh, unless you had background knowledge on security. So a couple years ago, I actually decided to go through the top 10 search results for like PHP and Crypt. And then I put like site colon stackoverflow.com and Google. And the first 10 answers, one of them was irrelevant. But the other nine, like I think it was only one of them that actually did authenticated encryption uh, before I got my hands on it. Most of my edits were rejected immediately. And that was frustrating. And then when I asked them, okay, well, you know, if you want to accept my edit, what can I do? And they're like, well, I'll just post another answer. And I was like, I have 300 karma. I can't post answers on questions that are locked. And I opened a question on Stack Overflow Meta. Saying, okay, well, what do I do in this situation? I don't have the established reputation in this, you know, community according to your point system. But these problems are, you know, these questions are very insecure. Like the answers that are given, uh, what do I do? And the answer that eventually came about was go in the chat room, post a link to it, and let a moderator know because they'll override the automatic editing process and approve it.
0: Oh, dear. But then, yeah, fortunately, yeah, you did get them all through. And, you know, now we're getting, you know, again, it's just feeding the developer the right information. I think, you know, as a developer, we don't want to write unsecure systems. And in fact, when we're trying to write secure systems, you know, using things that we think are secure, we genuinely believe they're secure. Um, you know, or or the best practice to use at that time. And it's a changing field and kind of, you know, things such as like Libsobium and then like the password hash API and stuff to kind of wrap this up and let someone who's good, like, you you know, yourself deal with it, you know, as opposed to us rewriting from scratch, you know, kind of these fundamental building blocks that we just have no idea where, you know, where to start and we'll just be copying and pasting probably wrong stuff. But one interesting thing, actually, would it be right maybe to define kind of what security is first cryptography because i think the two get mixed up a bit.
1: Yeah, security is a bit broader. I have my own way of looking at it that's not really like part of the OWASP wiki or the top 10 anywhere. Um so if you could try to learn like web application security, they'll talk about things like, you know, SQL injection and give you very specific like checklist items, like these are things to avoid. They don't really approach like the fundamental issues like they don't start at the very core at the highest level so security to me is about your software doing what you intended it to do not what you wrote or more generally doing what was intended not what some person wants it to do that it wasn't originally designed for and the issues that i focus on aren't like you know make sure you don't have sql injection it's making sure that your code and your data stay separate you know SQL injection and cross site scripting, they're inverses, one's server side, one's client-side. But the fundamental problem there is that you either have data acting as code or code acting as data. And when you get the two confused, you get things like you know uh, a web page that returns a JavaScript app you know snippet that steals your credit card number, or you are able to write a file to the file system that contains a shell that takes over the web server
0: absolutely and so that's a, that's a really great way of thinking of it um and personally like how did you get into php i'm assuming like obviously these sites that you were writing back in the day were they all written in php for
1: um yeah so when i was first getting onto the internet uh, i found a game called vagabond's quest and it was written by a guy who ran a company called net dragons in pearl um and i found out that it was written in pearl and i looked up and i tried to teach myself pearl at the age of 11 and that didn't go so successfully because you know it wasn't super user friendly for Absolute beginner with no programming experience, except for maybe a little bit of like JavaScript copied from Dynamic Drive. So, uh, after talking to actually the guy who ran it on his forum, he had like a little hosting thing he was offering. It's like one of his little side projects to his MMO that was completely text based. And one of the things they offer was a language called PHP. So, I looked that up. And after tinkering around with that, uh, I started deciding I wanted to build my own video game. So, I started doing like amateur game development, and I decided I wanted to build a web page or a website for like not only my projects but like a couple of other people's. And my screen name at the time was Cobra, so I called it Cobra's Realm. In the very beginning, you know, I was building PHP. The, the most I did with a database was interact with Envision Board, which I believe was also one of those things that was not supposed to be open source, but it was because of pirate sites. <laughs>
0: Obviously with PHP, is it like what kept you with PHP really then? Have you delved into other languages, looked into security in other language? Is like what What really is kind of, you know, your company, you know, strives on PHP. What What really is the reason behind that?
1: Um, the main reason is that it powers like eight, uh, five out of six websites on the internet. If you look at W3 text and look at server side programming languages, PHP is sitting comfortably in the 82 to 83% range. Uh, so that's why I focus a lot on that whenever I talk about stuff publicly uh, we do stuff in Java, C Sharp, Python. Um, we haven't touched any Ruby yet, which is really interesting because I know that's really hot in like Silicon Valley. But we're kind of generalists. But our focus on PHP is literally for the good of the community, uh, and also because there is a lot of software written in it. And if you've ever talked to a security people, and you mention, you know, it depends on what part of the com- internet you go to. Different communities have different, you know, toxicity levels. And you say you're a PHP developer, you tend to get flamed a little bit like they they'll respond very negatively and that's really unfortunately that's really unfortunate because uh it's a language that's used everywhere and you have some very brilliant people who just won't touch it like it's like a source of neglect for them and that's always been trouble something you know that troubled me i'm like okay so you have software that runs most of the internet including some of the top websites you know including facebook and wikipedia and you're completely turning a blind eye to it and then you're worried about like ddos attacks from other sites getting hacked pick one
0: (laughs) it's a very strange thing isn't it that you know there is that negativity towards it and like is any of it like kind of in the security realm of things um you know just like kind of in the language itself or is it mainly just because people who start off programming like me and you will pick up php and they'll learn unfortunately bad habits and they're the problem you know not the actual language itself
1: Um, there's a lot of ecosystem concerns because of, you know, the low barrier to entry for the language, which I view as a feature, not a bug. If it wasn't for the low barrier to entry, I might not even be programming today. I might have said, you know, okay, well, this is too hard. I'm going to go do something easier and just mess around with point and click stuff. I'm being honest. I started out as a beginner, just like everyone else. (laughs) But there's also historically, like I wasn't really active when this happened, but there was that month of PHP security. By the hardened PHP project, there was all these other things where they would like post like vulnerabilities in the language itself for a period of time back in the day. And people reference that a lot. It's like, oh, well, PHP, you know, it's insecure because blah, 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 blah. And the reasons they give are usually something like concerns over type safety, which really isn't a problem with modern PHP. Uh, And I'm not just talking about the language itself. I'm talking about, you know, how people develop software using things like PHP, Stan or Psalm, which are both static analysis tools. A lot of it's outdated information in security people because there's not a lot of communication between PHP developers and like people whose experience with PHP is hacking crappy, bit you know, crappy applications for the uh, OSCP exam.
0: Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a really strange thing. As you say, like, you know, it drives most of the Internet, but most, you know, but most of the top people want to push away from it. Uh, it's a very strange kind of dynamic there. And, um, you know, you did mention it, actually, kind of, you know, in this talking about web application security. And, you know, one thing that probably a lot of developers do know is the OWASP um, top 10. I'm just wondering kind of like, what is the OWASP top 10 and kind of what are your feelings towards it? I know you mentioned just a br- you know, brief moment ago, kind of you have a different view of things, you know, the data and code melding. But kind of like, what is your you know, general overview of it? Do you use it much?
1: It's a really good reference to, um, tool for somebody who's completely unfamiliar. Uh, I don't think it's a good introduction to security, especially application security. Uh, it's a good like it's a good reference for keeping yourself like up to check. Like okay, um, before we deploy, let's go through this checklist and make sure we didn't miss any of the items on here because you know these are the most common things people mess up and usually to disastrous results um it's updated i think every three or four years now originally it was supposed to be an every three-year thing which is supposed to be the most uh, common and severe vulnerabilities in web applications uh based on companies uh experienced during penetration tests or incident response which is a company gets hacked and you come in and you go okay well what was taken you know what was accessed what was damaged how did they get in and you know how can we prevent this you know what are the steps we can do to Get everything back, not only back to normal, but better than it was before. And you know they make their own internal notes on you know anonymous client number six three three was compromised by SQL injection, or was vulnerable to SQL injection if they were doing a you know proactive approach, which would be like a code audit or vulnerability uh, assessment before an incident could happen. Uh, and they aggregate all this data together and. They share like very highly anonymized data with each other when they're discussing, you know, the new top 10 list. So
0: that's kind of like the background on
1: how it comes to be.
0: That's interesting. Actually, you know, because obviously you do audits and stuff kind of, this is definitely off on a tangent a bit. I'm really interested to know kind of like how you go about auditing a bit of software, like, do you, you know, taking the black box approach, just kind of prodding it from the outside or, you know, kind of looking at the code base itself. How, how do you go about doing that?
1: It depends on the scope. Usually that's pre-negotiated. I favor more white box uh, testing than black box because uh, it's just time and efficiency sake. Uh, I can find a lot of bugs just from like opening an application in, like Burp Suite or Zap. There's a lot of things that are hidden if you don't know what to look for. Um, for example, there's a CMS called Anchor CMS that for their session IDs, which is used to log it, you know, to maintain like, oh, you are this person, you logged in with this password. It was generated using a function called str underscore shuffle, which is a PHP function that internally uses the RAND function, which only has 4 billion possible outputs. It's predictable and is predictably seeded. So if you know one output, you can predict future outputs. It uses a, uh, something called a linear congruent generator. So uh, I actually used this exact vulnerability uh, in a design for a backdoor that won the underhanded crypto contest at DEF CON. I want to say 23
0: Jeez, that's so cool, man. That's absolutely amazing. And like, because then following on from that, your company Paragon, they recently released um, an overarching guide to building secure PHP software in 2018, kind of like in the same vein to like doing PHP the right way, which really drew a lot of traction and really did well, I think, for the PHP community, kind of giving, you know, like a base kind of, you know, this is kind of what you should be looking into and links off to things, etc. And I thought it'd be really great, you know, maybe to kind of highlight some of these areas, um, if that's all right with you. Yeah, definitely. Awesome. Um, So like the first one that we all kind of know this now is that HTTPS everywhere, Uh, you know, things like Let's Encrypt, free certs everywhere and all this kind of stuff is amazing. It used to be that the barrier to entry was you would have to pay a lot of money uh, or be in the know. Now, you know, you can just set it up on your server and it can also renew and all these funky stuff like that. It's really great. But I was wondering, it'd be great to kind of get like a kind of high level overview and maybe like delve a little bit deeper into it about what actually is HTTPS and like the differences between TLS and SSL.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, so HTTPS, you know, it stands for HTTP Secure. And in modern use cases, that means HTTP over TLS, not SSL. Uh, the difference there is that SSL was a prototype that eventually became Internet Standard. Um, and the new version TLS. Like that's pretty much the difference is that SSL is older and should not be used. TLS is what should be used, uh, especially 1.2. To go a little bit more into specifics on that, there's a class of attacks called a padding oracle, uh, and it's exploitable against uh, RSA, which is you know the whole public key cryptography that's used uh, by most of the uh, certificates on the internet. Um, you can actually use a padding oracle to take a ciphertext, modify it. In- this case multiplication, and send it back to the server. And then if you get an error or if it ha- if an error occurs in decoding the padding after decrypting it with their private key, whether or not it tells you, um, you can often tell this from how long it takes to respond. You can learn whether or not your message had valid padding or not. And then you learn some facts about the plain text. And if you send uh, an automated script that does about a million of these, you can actually recover a 1024-bit th- uh, RSA message. The Numbers go up for a 2048 bit, but then a bunch of researchers over the years have found ways to optimize the actual attack, usually in the context of smart cards, to get it down to 12,000 messages. So, yeah, that was a problem that didn't really get fixed. But a lot of libraries that support TLS or SSL version two and three, which is the predecessor to TLS 1.0, uh, are vulnerable to this attack. So if you're supporting an old version of SSL because of, say, you know, some legacy reports you know, like, oh, we need to be compatible with Windows XP, you know, SP1, you're probably putting everybody at risk. So what is TLS? Uh, TLS is more of a, it's a kind of high-level protocol that handles uh, confidentiality, integrity, and availability, or uh, authentication for uh, communicating between two endpoints. In this case, it would be between a browser and a web server. So when you visit a webpage, page, you, know, you type whatever.com. It could be uh, your company's website. It could be uh, google.com. Uh, there's this entire infrastructure called the Certificate Authority uh, infrastructure. We call it a PKI, which just means public key infrastructure, which is you have a root signing key uh, for each certificate authority, which can then sign other certificates. And a digital signature is something that if you have the public key, you can verify, but you can only produce it with the private key. Uh, and there's a lot of math involved there that I'm not sure if you want us to go into too detailed.
0: <laughs> I think I'll save that for another episode.
1: <laughs> yeah, uh, I can go on about digital signatures for hours.
0: That, that is amazing. And I mean, like, you know, obviously, public key encryption kind of thing, public key signing RSA and all that is yeah, absolutely fascinating. And using things like Bitcoin and things like that for public key, you know, wallets and private keys and whatnot. With TLS, it's interesting, you mentioned there with SSL and stuff, because obviously TLS 1.0 is actually, I think, this year finally going to be deprecated or end of life. I know it got pushed back a year.
1: Yeah, um, so a lot of that has to do with Cypher Suites. Which I think was uh, another question you wanted to bring up.
0: Yeah, because I think that confuses me personally. I look at SSL and I look at TLS and I'm like, okay, we don't want to use SSL because that as a layer, you know, transport layer, you know, is, is kind of bad. So using TLS and you don't really want to use TLS 1.0, you want to use TLS, hopefully 1.2, but to support some of the older browsers and stuff, you end up having to maybe support 1.0, but you don't really want to. But then there's this whole other thing called Cypher Suites, which yeah, completely baffles my mind a little bit with kind of how I'm assuming that's to do with kind of how the actual messages are being encrypted.
1: Yep. Uh, So a Cypher Suite generally composes of a uh, encryption cipher, uh, like AES, uh, or ChaCha20, or hopefully not, but as an example that people might see in their configuration, RC4, uh, which is a stream cipher that produces predictable output there's biases you can actually decrypt messages and do key recovery and all kinds of crazy attacks from a full RC4 output uh there's a lot of research papers on this uh the general consensus to uh in the cryptography community is if you see RC4 in a system and it's not a random number generator it's broken like it's just outright like that is the vulnerability and you know you have these weird workarounds people say oh discard the first like 3 kilobytes of output but that doesn't really save you that just makes the trivial attacks people would do a lot more difficult.
0: So so what actually then is a cipher text then? Like what is is a cipher? Uh,
1: A cipher, classical cryptography, um, you might remember something like the Caesar cipher. Uh, where you would like shift the letters three places in the alphabet. Like A would become D, B would become E.
0: The rot-13 or things like that.
1: Exactly. So a cipher is simply a transformation of a message into a format that's supposed to be incomprehensible, and that's called the ciphertext. The original message, and the one you hopefully recover if you have the key, is called the plaintext. Modern ciphers use a combination of techniques, um, substitution, uh, transposition, And a lot of mathematical operators like uh, bit shifting and exclusive or uh, to create a multi round transformation of a message that achieves this property called diffusion, where if you change one bit, kind of like a hash, like if you change a bit of a message going into MD5, it looks completely random. But this per block, it looks random, but you can still reverse it.
0: And then obviously then, so a Cypher suite then is you've got each of these different Cyphers, different ways of actually producing this Cypher text. And its suite of them is the different options then that, say, a server offers to a client that we, I can support.
1: Yeah, so a Cypher suite is going to consist of usually the public key. You know, you can specify it or it goes to its default options. Like if you're using uh, what's called ephemeral Diffie-Hellman, uh, the client and the server will generate a one-time private public key pair, to use to negotiate a shared secret, and then they'll encrypt that uh, using that. Uh, It includes a cipher and it usually includes a hash function which is used for generating message authentication codes. Uh, Some modern ciphers uh, come only in authenticated modes. So it'll specify that and then you won't have a hash function associated with it necessarily.
0: You know that kind of leads on to the question. Then, so I've set up a box. I've got HTTPS on there. I'm using TLS. I've I'm only allowing TLS one oh plus maybe one 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 two. I should be, or at least well, actually one two. Then the cipher suites. What ones should I choose? Then, obviously, not the RC fours
1: yeah so you want to stay away from anything that says like a null or E null, which basically means no encryption or no authentication uh you want to stay away from things that involve md5 or sha1 uh you also want to stay away from cbc mode so if you see aes cbc somewhere uh unless you have to have it first like old browser support so most ciphers uh some of the newer ones you know are kind of the exception here uh operate on blocks where you have like 16 bytes and then the next block will be 16 bytes and so on and so forth and each block is done independently. You know that's how the ciphers are designed. You take 16 bytes of data in and a key, and then you get 16 bytes of jumbled text. That if you have the correct key, you can reproduce the original. But if you send any messages, you don't always have an even number of 16 bytes. You might have like a 49 byte message. Well, if you had you know 16 byte blocks, you'll have three blocks and then a one byte left over. So what they do is they do this thing called padding, where like uh, in the case of the example I just gave, where you have one byte left over, that would be a new block where you have the one byte and then you have 15 spaces. So you take that number 15 encode it in binary and put it 15 times. So, you know, when you decrypt the message, you see the last byte is 15. So you go 15 places over. And if they're all 15, you strip them. So, you know, that seems like a sane way to use a block cipher. The problem is if you can flip bits in the previous block You can alter the subsequent block and you can do what's called a padding oracle, which sounds very similar to what I said about RSA, uh, because RSA has a weird padding thing where if you detect an error, you can learn information about the message. This is the exact same thing. You can actually decrypt a a message one byte at a time uh, by using this padding oracle. And it's supposed to not be possible because TLS authenticates messages But it does it in a backwards way to what we now know is the best way to do things. It would authenticate the message and then encrypt it. So your uh, authentication code would be on the message itself. But then that would be padded in CBC mode. And that led to vulnerabilities like Beast and I think Lucky 13.
0: So am I right in thinking then? So TLS and SSL are kind of like the... The transportation based on that you, you can put you can use the same cipher suites for both TLS and SSL or are they specifics that t- only TLS can support, etc.?
1: Um, a lot of the newer ones are, were only defined for like TLS 1.2 and most browsers that only speak TLS 1.0 won't know what these new cipher suites are. The numbers are there uh, that are reserved in the IANA, but the browser software has no idea what to do with it. So when, it's, when you uh, do what's called a handshake uh, to a server your browser and the server negotiate what to use. And it tries to select the most secure option available that they both support.
0: How does it work that out? Because obviously, I suppose the most secure is, is debatable among people, or is there kind of like a consensus that that is a more secure way based on previous attacks and things like that? How is that juggled?
1: That's kind of a crapshoot. You, you hear a lot about downgrade attacks, um, like Poodle and Robot. Uh, so the answer there probably isn't a good one.
0: (laughs) Cause I could see that being a problem, you know, where one browser chooses one thing, another one chooses another based on whatever they decide to be. Yeah.
1: You might have a browser that says I won't do CBC mode, but I only support TLS 1.0 and lower. So the only option is like RC4 SHA-1, which is not a good Cypher suite. And then the server might turn around and say, uh, I only support AES, you know, Galah counter mode, which is GCM. Or you know some of these other authenticated modes like CCM and uh, ChaCha20 with the Poly1305 authenticator. Uh, most people just call that ChaPoly. They might say, "Oh yeah, we only support modern ciphers," and the browser just won't connect. So that tends to lead people like, "Oh, I can't connect to your site." You know, "Oh no, well, what's the problem?" And then you know you get into the situation to where you're supporting really old versions of TLS or really insecure cipher suites. But that's the negotiation between the client, the server, and the software. Basically, the client sends a list of what it supports. The server will send back what to use. So you can actually configure a server to say, you know, only, you know, prefer the server ciphers. Don't support, you know, the client choose because what if the client chooses something really stupid?
0: That That's exactly it. Yeah. The whole thing about HTTPS is there's, there's, there's the kind of two things, you know, you mentioned there the CA. So that's like kind of authenticating that you are. That person, you know, whether you you are that that company's website or something like that, you know, based on the public key encryption there, or based on the signing, so of the of the certificate, and then you've actually got the the actual encryption side, the public key side, where you can actually do self sign things, can't you, and things like that to kind of just you know maybe in dev you see it typically, uh, you know, where you may trust your own you know your own certificate, but you still get the merits of the fact of the encryption between you, know, so you don't get the man in the middle attacks
1: exactly so authentication is kind of a thorny problem we have solutions that work but they're not really like perfect i would guess would be the best way to put it if you hack into a certificate authority and give yourself the ability to forge certificates for any site on the internet you're the internet is in a better place today to respond to that than they were 10 years ago
0: because it has happened in the past hasn't it yeah there have been some problems yeah
1: there was a notable case uh it was called DigiNotar. um i forget the country that we're based out of where they just got completely owned there was also the microsoft uh signing certificate that was used by the nsa because they used md5 and they were able to do a uh collision attack against the md5 hash function and generate a uh code signing certificate which they could use forever and that was actually used in the flame hour interesting attacks i'm sorry allegedly nsa it's been all but confirmed but it has not been like officially confirmed
0: Oh dear, you always have to put that allegedly. You know, you have to prefix it with that. Yeah some could argue then obviously with this extra work it does there is a bit of a performance hit. would you say there's any acceptable use case to just using http uh typically you know you'll see something like ssl termination or tls termination so you have a box that from the public internet terminates it and then through your local vpc if you're in aws world or you know maybe just in your local land you're able then to work around just using basic http is that an okay thing to do or is that kind of still bad
1: um, that in- depends entirely on your threat model. If you have your own data center, but you have like a like a dedicated machine that just does SSL and then passes it back over a wired connection to a server that's right next to it, uh, there's very little you can do to intercept that unless you have physical access to the server, in which case you could probably just hack the server directly or power it off, hook in like a... Take the hard drive. Yeah, unless the, you know they have full disk encryption. There's layers of defenses you can do against all kinds of mean things. Generally, I would say that the only time it's acceptable is to do HTTP unless, you know, your threat model says, yes, we don't expect people to break into our data center and intercept between these two endpoints on the network that are hardware linked, not like Wi-Fi, would be if it's like a local development environment, like uh, in a virtual machine, like Vagrant or VirtualBox. Uh, and if anything else, because of uh, the ISRG, which produces Let's Encrypt uh, and the ACME standards, there's really no benefit to not using HTTPS. go to is tlsfastyet.com i think that site's still up so a lot of the performance problems people assumed would be within you know tls because oh it is encrypted actually it's kind of the opposite so there's a new standard called HTTP 2 and a lot of the features i don't know if it's the entire protocol because i haven't really dealt with trying to break it lately and most of the people uh, i work with use HTTPS anyway so i haven't tested this in theory but is over HTTPS. like if using ssl slash tls actually makes your site faster for your users that's the paradigm we've landed on today and the uh, tls working group and the w3c have i believe formally committed to any new features like browser enhancements not browser enhancements, uh performance enhancements to the protocols will only be available over a secure medium if you're using TLS uh, and like some new version of HTTP2 comes out that does something like crazy fast, you'll only use it if you're using a secure connection. If you're using an insecure connection, you get nothing. You're stuck with the old days of downloading one resource at a time.
0: Moving on from there, then, kind of another security thing in mind is the headers that you can do actually in responses. So these are like security headers that you mentioned in the building secure PHP software post and things like this. Are again, another thing where it's like, oh, wow. OK, so I've set these headers and they will do some magic things, you know, on the browser side. I'm just wondering kind of what are then the security headers that we should be setting and and why is it so important to set them?
1: So what security headers do is tell the browser to enable security features, and sometimes it tells them how to configure them. Content security policy is one where you basically tell the browser don't load any images unless it's from these domain names, including you know localhost. Don't allow any JavaScript to connect to any other outside sources at all. Or if to allow, if you want to allow any, only allow these specific domain names, which you can specify HTTPS, by the way. And I recommend doing that. Um, there's a lot of granular things you can do there, and it's basically it sends it in a header. And then your browser, if like somebody did like a cross-site scripting attack successfully against your website, if you had a uh, content security policy that basically would refuse to connect anywhere, it only allowed like static content, they would more than likely fail.
0: So I suppose that depends on the browser itself then and how up to date that is.
1: Yeah, um, I know Chrome and Firefox have adopted the uh, model of self-updating, which is a good thing. You don't want to be exposed, especially browsers, which are a really attractive target for criminals, to uh, vulnerabilities that were found out yesterday because chances are if they were exploited in the wild, you know, there's not much you can do about it. But if they haven't been yet, chances are they will be soon.
0: Following on from that, you know, another thing to do with the browser and kind of response, things you can actually do such as like sub-resource integrity, which I didn't even know about until I read your blog post and I thought that was amazing. And obviously the scary one of the document relationships Uh, and the rel you know links there and stuff i'm just wondering if you could maybe go into those two
1: yeah so that's kind of a newish thing usually browser security was about setting the correct headers like enabling strict transport security which would tell you to go over a you know never send an unencrypted packet to the server the sub resource integrity allows you to load content from a content delivery network or cdn without exposing yourself to attacks if the cdn gets hacked so what you would do is you would uh, in, in your HTML that embeds like the CSS or JavaScript include an integrity hash, usually SHA-256 or SHA-384 uh, of the actual content of that file. So you don't have to like copy and paste it from, you know, from the CDN. You can offload it all to them, but if they get hacked and whatnot, they can't abuse their privilege. They have to load code onto your web page to do anything malicious. They can only load the code that you've already identified as safe
0: and I can imagine that is another attack vector that's highly scouted because of the fact of how much you know. Pretty much, it's an open door to many websites. These CDNs.
1: Um. So publicly, a lot of the attacks that you'll hear me talk about, which involve attacking content delivery networks or uh, package managers, are actually very rarely exploited in the wild in a way that is widely known, like detectable. For the last couple of years, I've been a you know staunch critic of like WordPress and Joomla and Drupal because. Uh, if they have an update mechanism at all that's automatic uh WordPress does Drupal involves user interaction uh Joomla I think is still working on it. If you hack the update server uh that's it. you just gained access to you know in WordPress cases a quarter of the internet for free. You can just push your malware and you just immediately own everything. so I'm very concerned about that as a source of
0: like it's a single point point of failure. Because this is something you worked on the CMS airship, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, uh, version two is actually coming out later this month. I've just got some polish to put on some of the new features. So Airship is was my answer to them having like this severe lack of uh, momentum on anything, you know, this inertia towards better security. Uh, I ended up building an alternative that has secure automatic updates.
0: So how does it go about doing that if it is all right, maybe asking?
1: Um, so it pulls an update server, just like, you know, WordPress does and any, and this isn't just code that I produce. This is also includes any community built extensions. Uh, it will download the file that has, you know, it could be a PHP archive. It could be a zip file with the update, which will be, you know, like either a patch for existing files and, uh, a JSON file is built into the metadata. If it's a PHP archive that says, you know, replace these files and then run the script, and then that file is signed with a key uh, using a modern digital signature algorithm called ed25519 that the private key is not touched. The server doesn't know it. The person who uploads it either through the barge command line tool or uh, an internal tool will be used called hangar uh, for building airship itself can sign their releases, but the server doesn't know what the signing key is. So even if you hack our server, you can't forge signatures. You can at best replay old versions and deny people updates. And the other thing it does is every update's committed to a Merkle tree, which every airship maintains a copy of. Any updates to uh, anything we produce, anything the community produces, any new keys are all committed to this.
0: And very Bitcoin esque.
1: <laughs> very Bitcoin esque, without all of the um, like proof of work or you know, it, it's like half of a blockchain.
0: Without the mining.
1: Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, so there's a central like authority. Um, I ended up generalizing this and built something called Chronicle that uses a slightly different data structure for efficient uh, writes, but also allows easy replication and um, cross-signing. And it's actually built as a standalone microservice written in Slim.
0: Again, another complete tangent. I'm really sorry. I'm kind of going and waffling on here. Uh, but like kind of what is your opinion on cryptocurrencies? Because I know that you mentioned on Twitter, you know, crypto is not cryptocurrencies, but everyone obviously has now shortened crypto because people don't want to talk about cryptography. They want to talk about the cryptocurrency and the money behind it, fiat currency or whatever. Um, you know, what is your opinion on Bitcoin and, and like the internals of such a such a system?
1: Bitcoin and a lot of the popular ones use a uh, class of digital signature algorithm over what's called a Koblitz curve, which I'm not confident in the security of. The one used by Bitcoin is probably secure, but um, it hasn't been hammered on as much as some of the ones that we use for like digital signatures, like P two fifty nine or two P two fifty six. So. You know, there's the crypto nerd side of me that has that like very staunch critical, you know, criticism of like the internals they chose, like why did you use Ripe MD one sixty, why shot double SHA two fifty six? Like I question a lot of the designs as a, you know, how would I do it better? But as a technology, it's pretty cool. Like, I know a lot of people who are into cryptography today that only really learned about it because they Found out about Bitcoin and most people when they find out Bitcoin, they think of like the uses for it, like money or like illicit purchases of whatever off the Internet. Uh, I'm not here to judge. I just don't do that myself. I'm thankful that people that are in the community today are there because Bitcoin like opened the door for them.
0: Now, that is interesting. It is opening the door to many people who want to then get involved, understand the code base and understand the internals of it. Yeah. And there's so much, you know, good stuff in there to learn. And for someone like you as a cryptographer, you know, kind of your input into it. And like, do do you see and do you keep in like kind of a look at all the other many, many, many coins and and many, many systems that are in place? Uh, You know, maybe some of the privacy coins and things like that and looking at how they do it differently. And, and, uh, you know, are they actually better in your opinion?
1: So I know a lot of the people on the zcash team professionally we've either collaborated on and this is including past members of the team on like security not really paid audits but open source stuff like taylor hornby used to work on the build system for zcash before it launched a lot of the people like ian myers and matthew green who are uh, zcash core developers are people who i talk to on twitter and slack they're all really cool people so i am very slightly biased towards uh, Zcash. Not only because I know the technology involved, like uh, zk snarks over Bn one eight one two eight, some of the cool things like Equihash, which they use as their proof of work function, uh, the fact that they actually use Libsodium for their uh, cryptography for uh, shielding addresses, like sending encrypted messages, they use the sealing uh, API they provide. There's a lot of cool stuff about it uh, from a cryptography standpoint and i'm very cautious to recommend one cryptocurrency because that's more of a market analysis question than uh, some of the other ones like monero i've been talking to some people off the record on like their opinions including some Zcash developers and they're convinced that the person who designed uh note, which uh, crypto note which is what monero is based off of was like some unsung genius out in the world because they implemented ring signatures and the code is very elegant and very well like they didn't expect this to just pop out of the ether and then they never heard from them again really
0: very satoshi nakamoto like
1: (laughs) very much so and at the same time the community around certain cryptocurrencies like monero are actually slightly toxic if you go on any uh hacker news thread that talks about bitcoin or In particular, um, Monero, Zcash, or any of the other privacy-focused cryptocurrencies, you will see a lot of accounts, some old, some new, just completely trash-talk Zcash, and then plug Monero when people ask what to use instead. In response to that, I looked at their code, found that they had a user-space renderer generator that was based off of a early version of the SHA-3 standard before it was finalized. And I reported to them and I said, hey, you guys should just use the OS as RNG. Uh, quick tip, if anybody's doing systems programming and you're not on an embedded system where you have to you know, to do anything special, uh, just read devurandom. random uh, If you have the get-random to syscall, perfect, use that instead. But generally, just read devurandom. random It does everything you would expect a secure random number generator to do, mostly without caveats. If you're doing anything with embedded, you probably have other constraints, but you should know what those are.
0: Uh, Because it is interesting. Yeah, I'm like, I mean, obviously the marketing side and the financial side, everyone's like going to buzz with Bitcoin and stuff. But for me, you know, it's the understanding the internals that is so interesting. I'm like currently going through the Mastering Bitcoin book and just loving it. Yeah, it's just a fascinating thing. And like, it's kind of this experiment that's just, gone and, and just worked uh it's you know it's working and it's still working and it's a very expensive and now you know big thing to crack and no one's cracked it yet but it is interesting you know from people like you you know who admire and kind of your respect you know you're saying that what they're using isn't 100 percent amazing and like kind of secure you know it could there could be better, better things there probably you know that's why you've got all these extra you know people coming in who want to do different things and stuff uh, it's a fascinating space
1: Yeah, the only thing that worries me is that you hear a lot of like these new coins being launched for questionable purposes. Uh, I get called into a lot of like meetings with prospects where the person says, hi, we hear, you know, about crypto, we have a problem. You know, it could be something like, you know, chain of custody for digital, you know, for document signatures or something that is totally like it's a real problem. It is something that, you know, needs to be solved. It's something that could be a lot of social good, especially if it's like in the legal space. But they'll say, okay, we have a problem. And can we use blockchain to solve that is their question. And I'm like, wow, you are really putting the cart before the horse.
0: Yep, that's it. Exactly. I've i got the solution. I'm just trying to find the problem now to make that solution right.
1: Yeah. And it doesn't help that like um, last night it came out that Kodak decided to
0: announce Kodak coin. I know. It just makes you laugh, doesn't it? How much are they spending on a dime there to go like, we are now going to be mining.
1: Mm -hmm. Their stock price more than doubled just because they announced a cryptocurrency.
0: You can, you know, you can be annoyed at them, but they're riding on it. And look at that, yeah, exactly. They're doing what they need to do and they get their stock price up. But it is ridiculous. I mean, everyone is now decided to to have a coin. I mean, you've got like things like DentaCoin and things like that now with which ridiculous market evaluation and like kind of thing. And it's just like it does annoy you a bit where you're just like, yeah, everyone has to have a coin or everyone has to think blockchain is the solution to everything. It is a fascinating technology in itself as well, but it's not saying it's the savior of everything. It's not a silver bullet like anything.
1: Exactly. Uh I know a lot of people like when people approach this and they say, you know, we have we want to do a blockchain, I am ninety percent convinced that they immediately, you know, they they suspected something like Kodak Coin would happen. Where if they say we're using blockchain technology, like they'll just suddenly like the VC money just comes rolling in. You know, as an engineer, especially a security engineer, I'm not really bound by professional ethical code per se. Like I did never swore an oath to protect anything, but I do follow my own morals and principles in life. So, if you're telling me, hey, I want to build a system, I'm using blockchain or whatever, first of all, I'm going to ask what the problem you're solving is, what the constraints are, and I'm going to suggest something that is actually appropriate. That doesn't go over too well with some people, you know, to each their own. I know they're trying to check a box. That way they can get that sales pitch out there without being duplicitous or outright dishonest. Those are the kinds of things I usually walk away from. <laughs>
0: Hey guys, Ed here. Uh, I had a really long chat with Scott, actually, and I thought it'd be good maybe to actually cut this into two different parts. Uh, so yeah, this is the end of the first part. So until next week, goodbye. You've been listening to Three Devs and a Maybe. You can contact us at contact at three devs and a maybe dot com or follow us on Twitter at the number three devs and a maybe.